0: I want us to become brothers again, like we used to be, and for us to find ourselves and bond with each other. Can we agree to that? Opinions vary. Welcome to the Three Brothers Film Pass, a monthly roundtable podcast where the brothers behind Three Brothers Film discuss chosen movies as well as broader topics in film culture. Thank you so much for listening to us over this past half year of the podcast. If you've enjoyed our discussions, please consider leaving a rating or review, or recommending us to your family and friends. Of course, we really want to bring more people into the conversation. Five-star reviews really help new listeners find us, and help us carve out a niche for quality, nuanced conversations about movies. I'm Anton Berksham, and I'm here with my brothers. Anders. And Aaron. My last name is the same as my brothers. And this week we're talking about one of the golden ages of the cinema, the summers of the 1990s. For this summer of not much happening movie theaters, We've put together a list of summer movies from the 1990s that we recommend, and hope will put you back in that happy space of the summer movie theater.
1: Okay, ramblers, let's get (laughs) rambling. Dr. Grant, my dear Dr. Sattler, welcome to Jurassic Park.
0: the summer movie season of the 1990s is often remembered for excess of budgets off-screen and enormous scale destruction on-screen, its artistic achievements are often overlooked. The technical achievements of many of these films are remembered, particularly in the special effects departments, but it's easy to not notice their finer successes in terms of acting, character construction, and storytelling. What's more, looking back on these summer seasons, two decades past, in an age in which many movie theaters are still closed here in Canada, and, even if they were open, streaming platforms have broken up the sense of mass audience experience. There's definitely something special about that era of big-budget blockbusters and other crowd-pleasing summer fare. And this was before the franchise property system took control of Hollywood's approach to blockbusters over the 2000s, from Harry Potter to Marvel. Each of us, without prior discussion with each other, has put together a list of three summer movies from the 1990s that we're recommending in some way. The main criteria was that the movie was released in the summer movie season, so May through August, of a year in the 1990s. We also tried to focus on movies that targeted the four-quadrant audience, and thereby were consciously constructed as popular mass audience fare. We've left the other details to hash out in our conversation. Lastly, to make this about possible new discoveries, or taking a second look for you, the listener. We've opted to avoid including the biggest blockbusters of the decade, such as T2, Jurassic Park and the Lost World, Independence Day, Men in Black, The Matrix, and Star Wars Episode One: The Phantom Menace. Most everyone has seen these movies, and no one needs us to recommend them. Thinking back, I recall the giddy disorientation of exiting the back of a darkened cinema into the blinding sun of a summer afternoon and I've tried to draw on that sense of, well, happiness and putting together my list. Mine are based both on fond memories and some recent rewatches, but I, I don't know what your guys' methods were. In any case, Aaron, you can have the honors of starting us off.
1: So I have a sheet in front of me of the various picks from the summer movie seasons of the 90s, and I feel like I'm already changing my mind just looking down because it's just you're reading through the, the list of movies like Independent Stage Jurassic Park it's like yeah those are the obvious ones but I'm like are some of these too obvious but uh whatever I have to not think too much about it so my first pick would be The Rock from by mm-hmm. director Michael Bay released on June 7th 1996 Welcome to The Rock So, I'm going to kind of paraphrase a recent Letterboxd review I wrote, but in it, I was like, Elmer Leonard has these kind of 10 rules for writing, and his 10th rule is try to leave out the part that readers tend to skip. So, Michael Bay essentially takes this maxim, and he applies it to the action movie. Any moment that could bore you, any moment that is not exciting enough he either cuts it out or he amplifies the filmmaking with tons of angles tons of camera movements and just balloons the action to such an insane degree that it's really really hard not to be caught up in the the chaos of what's happening on screen in some ways this kind of um predicts what would happen in the 20 2000s especially the 2010s with the amplification of on-screen action but this movie still has the goods of what like a summer movie is for me i think it's got sean connery a great 90s Sean Connery, late role. It's got Nicolas Cage transitioning over from dramatic filmmaking to make kind of his action debut. It has a really great supporting cast, Ed Harris, um, Michael Bean, John Spencer, David Morris, all those kind of guys is filling out the smaller roles. And the thing that makes The The Rock so entertaining, beyond the kind of like 90s sheen to it, the San Francisco location, the really amplified story, plot about you know hostages being held at the rock um alcatraz it's the filmmaking it's the camera work i don't think any american filmmaker has really done camera work this well or as much like a like a hong kong master as this specific
0: movie it's kind of movement that is as good as anything by john woo so um remind me again what summer is the rock and that was that was cage's first 96. It's before he went into Con Air and he before okay. those other ones. So because
1: remember, the, the year the
0: year before, before he won he Best won Actor.
1: Best Actor for in Las Vegas, right?
0: So. Yeah. Oh, so this is his follow-up this, to Best it's like Actor. He,
1: it's like he had the cachet now because of the Oscar, and he's like, I'm gonna cash it in yeah. with a big action movie. So Watch it was it. a
0: big pivot
1: into these
0: summer action movies.
1: It's also, it's it's my favorite Michael Bay
2: movie, but it's, it's so good. I rewatched it this past, actually, in the last uh, few months, and it, I agree with everything you said about like the kinetic filmmaking, the 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 lack of cuts. I mean, there's a famous story that with The Rock, Bay pioneered his his uh, method of test screening, where anytime he noticed too many people getting up in the test screen and going to the bathroom, you put mm-hmm. in another action scene, which actually resulted in the extension of the the car chase through the streets of San Francisco um, when Sean Connery's character is uh, first trying to escape.
1: And that seems like clearly, all, you know, clearly playing off the police story, destroying all the shanty which he would then actually do in *Blad Boys 2, like in the Gitmo scene. <laughs> exactly.
0: <laughs> I, it's been a while since I saw The Rock. Like, I haven't been rewatching Michael Bay the way you guys have. Um, but I do remember that very fondly. Uh, like, The Rock, off the top of my head, is probably my favorite of his movies. And I remember watching it as, like, a boy and, like, just being blown away and being, like, so gripped by it and finding it so intense. And the ending where it's, like, we have to stab ourselves in the heart, like, it was just, like,
2: overwhelming. The As I remember, Anton, I think, I'm pretty sure this, that was the first Bay film we saw because we I don't think we ever saw Bad Boys before that.
0: No, I didn't. And I, didn't.
2: Um, and I think we might have watched it with Dad as well. And it was, like, that, like, intense, Yeah, and Yeah, I think you know, one of our uncles. <laughs> yeah, my Uncle David. Um, but the, like... There's so many things in that film that kind of stand out to like a teenage, you know, boy. Like for, I still remember
1: the like you know the whole idea of the VX nerve gas
2: and stuff like
1: that. Yeah. So, yeah. I just f- I also feel like it's macho posturing to like the greatest degree ever by Connery. Like yeah. his infamous <laughs> lines, which I'm not going to repeat because they're not safe for you know G-rated podcast. But um, he's the ultimate cool dude. But despite it is, being one, a- it
0: is one of his great like um, later roles.
2: Yeah. And despite being an R-rated movie, I do agree that it's it's a crowd pleaser. It attempts to have, you know, it has the the one of the things people often forget about Bay is that he also is a sentimentalist and a like he always had like the scenes with Nicholas Cage and his girlfriend, uh, which were sort of echoed later in uh, Armageddon with the scenes between uh, Ben Affleck and Liv Tyler and stuff like that. You know, he he's definitely playing to both genders, a large age group, older people who remember Connery, young guys who just want testosterone action.
0: So, wait, Anders, so are you recommending this too? Was this on your list? It um, wasn't because... Okay. Yeah. Okay. I, just, I just assumed everyone would pick... I would yeah, okay. rock in the category with like the others. Aaron, any so, final comments before we'll give Anders his pick?
1: I just think people have this opinion of Bay... Yeah, I think even people who don't like what Bay is come to stand for would be surprised at revisiting this movie, how much it fits into the 90s action film and how good Connery
0: and Cage are together, their charisma and their chemistry. So if you've never watched a Michael Bay, you're saying, go see this one. even, if, even you've if you've seen it already. Transformers
1: movies, do watch this again because yeah. I think you'll be surprised. Absolutely. All right, Anders. All right, so my first
2: pick is a movie that, on the one hand, some people would say is potentially an extremely popular movie, but I don't think it's always remembered as a summer movie, and I don't think that people appreciate how much of a crowd-pleasing four-quadrant movie uh, Film it is, and it's 1993's *The Fugitive*, starring <laughs> oh, yeah. Harrison Ford.
1: I didn't kill my wife.
0: I don't care.
2: Well, when was it? When was it released? It was released on August sixth, so it's a late summer release. Really? August sixth, 1993. Yeah. *The Fugitive*. *The Fugitive*. People may forget is was actually the second highest-grossing film of that summer after *Jurassic Park*.
0: Wow. I, didn't, and, I don't remember it as a summer movie.
2: I know. But, but it came out in August and it had legs, right? And it carried it through into the Oscar season and Tommy Lee Jones winning, and ultimately winning the Oscar for playing, you know, as Marshall. Anyway, The Fugitive, it's one of those films I periodically will come back to and I'm always, like, stunned by how incredibly, like, entertaining it is. I do think it's one of, the, like, the, the great Harrison Ford performances outside of the Star Wars and Indiana Jones and Blade Runner stuff. And Tommy Lee Jones is, of course, you know, so infamous, like, the and the li- the lines, like, even though it's like, essentially, uh, you know, a chase film, detective police, uh, you know, wrong man, kind of Hitchcockian type thing going on. It has like those like 90s catchphrases like that is like, I didn't kill my wife. Yeah. I don't care. Things like that. Right. And like, some of the set pieces are like, really great. Like the St. Patrick's Day cat and mouse chase scene. And things like that. I so I always fondly remember it as you know, like a great like sort of uh, action film in that way. And it ties into um, sort of '90s action also in terms of being people may forget that it's actually a movie adaptation of an old TV show, right? Mm -hmm. So it fits into that sort of like so later Mission Impossible and things like that. So I've to me it does fit into that summer blockbuster thing in that it's a, a reboot sent really or you know a remake of an old franchise you yeah. given prestige stars with harrison ford big budget action scenes, the train crash they actually crashed a train right like yeah. it's, it's and that's an awesome. amazing
0: train crash yeah that
2: train crash is fantastic so i would say the fugitive people forget that it's actually a summer movie and it's the kind of filmmaking that we don't get anymore right which is like big budget star studded Uh, films that don't insult the audience but are definitely crowd pleasers
1: and play really really broad and it's it's also very much like the adult summer counter programming right you have the kids movie Jurassic Park you have the fugitive for more a little more serious fare but you know from our own experiences it's a movie that kids love because I think I think one of the things that the fugitive has that um defines so much the 90s and the kind of summer entertainment in general is this really unwavering sense of justice and the movie is all about like justice will be done he mm-hmm. will have his name cleared and as a kid you get really caught up in the idea of like he didn't do it he didn't kill his wife he's got you know it's
0: got to work out in the end yeah so it's extremely satisfying as a crowd pleaser I would also comment that I think the movie stands out even in the 90s in terms of summer movies for its serious approach that it, it actually takes this, like, old, somewhat gimmicky, like, TV show and then plays it, like, very serious. Um, the acting's all, like, very good. And even though it has, like, these super memorable lines in it, it's not like, um, there's not, there's nothing, like, sort of, um, the goofball fun of a lot of uh, mm-hmm. 90s blockbusters. There's no, no, like, cheap comic
1: relief or anything like that in there. Yeah, exactly. They didn't even though it's throw funny points.
0: Yeah. Him e- specifically him
1: eating the guy's egg sandwich. Yes, yeah, in the hospital scene. <laughs> uh, yeah, very. I fun. love that scene when he shaves his beard and stuff like that. Like, but I always it. remember that for some reason, like he's eating this man's egg sandwich. <laughs>
2: the egg poor salad. old man, right? Like, and he, men- I remember, I remember that he stuffs macaroni salad inside the sandwich. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. like, well, <laughs> I
0: remember that because it was one of those great little moments where, often in a chase in a movie, like no one pays attention to the f- the fact that you need to eat. But right, he's a fugitive, and the, they play up his the survival aspects on the, mi- the minute level and then like him like i got to find like a little place to rent like things like this like it's, it really it's plays in, well
2: it's anchored in the specificity of place like chicago mm-hmm. um and also like just like the rock it has like a nice supporting cast of like both like up-and-coming and like established actors so you have small roles actually by like julianne moore and joe pantoliano and then you actually have the villain uh jerome Crab as uh, dr charles nichols right who is the villain in james bond uh living
0: daylights as well so mm-hmm. and i think we'll see you know, like you know some of the stuff on my list um that like a good supporting cast you know maybe a good villain these are often hallmarks of these 90s summer block summer movies
1: well so what's your what's your first pick
0: okay so, I think you guys might be skewing towards action, and maybe I'm skewing a little bit more towards the, like, the blockbuster. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to front load with controversy and say Waterworld.
2: The future. The polar ice caps have melted. And the earth lies beneath a watery grave. Those who survived have adapted
0: to a new world. July 28th, 1995, directed by Kevin Reynolds, of course, starring Kevin Costner, Gene Triplehorn, and Dennis Hopper as a great psycho villain, one of his best, like, psycho villain roles. It actually, has Jack Black also as a early cameo as one of the what? smoker pilots. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah. Anyway, so I'm not making the case for Waterworld being a a great movie, the way that I think The Fugitive is a great movie, but I'm making the case for it being a good summer blockbuster, and one that is definitely undervalued, that I think um, the narrative about the movie as like one of the mega flops being so expensive is not only somewhat wrong in the sense that ultimately the movie recouped its cost just not at the box office, through video and things like that. And it was really sold up as being like this major blockbuster in the fact that it just wasn't a huge hit. Sort of people latched onto this idea that it was like one of the all-time great flops, but it's not. And if you go back and watch the movie, what we actually get, and so here's the case I'm gonna make, we get one of the better post-apocalyptic worlds put on screen. It's not at the level of George Miller, Mad Max, particularly Fury Road, which I think is far and away the best, but it does share a cinematographer with Mad Max 2, The Road Warrior, and Beyond Thunderdome, that helps explain I think why the movie has um, really solid production values. Like not only do they spend a ton and build these sets, but the movie has a really nice tactile feel, and and it has like some of the the it has some of the crazy world building that like Mad Max has, where like there's a guy with sort of like a weird pig mask shooting his like machine gun boat you know like in that but it doesn't go full crazy in the way that george miller does um so it's a little bit more mainstream and it does a good job of uh of building this world like the, you know there's like a hydroholic this guy who's like addicted to water because people pay so much money to drink water <laughs> <laughs> The collecting the soil uh going under the ocean no one knows like it's actually a pretty good story uh david twohy wrote the screenplay it's the Some guy who did went pitch yeah, the guy who went on to do Riddick, the Riddick stuff. Riddick. And you can already see, like, this is clearly written by someone who is interested in trying to sort of build, like, a, a, a believable world on screen. And then the last thing I'll probably say is that um, it just has, like, it's just pretty, like, good movie. Like, um, it has good action scenes. It has a nice arc for a blockbuster. Um, there's There is cheesy moments in it. There's silly stuff. My wife was watching and she was like, this part's pretty like completely goofy, but it's kind of awesome to see like Kevin Costner at his height, having like webbed feet, (laughs) driving in one of the coolest, I think, boats put on screen. It's like a super fast sailboat that he like him jumping around on it and being able to manipulate it makes it like go super fast.
2: It's a catamaran, right? Like.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Like, it. Ha- yeah. It's like, it has like the, the large extended sort of, I don't know what you call them, um, parts of the boat and a lot of it's sort of netting, not actually a hull. And he has a like giant, giant sails that allow him to, that he can like sort of, he's cobbled together. You know, he's named the Mariner. Most of the characters don't have names. Um, and it, it also has the, what went on to be sort of like a meme before memes, but like the in a world guy, like in a world where he actually narrates the beginning of Waterworld when it describes the polar ice caps melting. Plus, why is this movie not remembered in sort of our, you know, our green yeah. climate world? Why is this movie not remembered and, and pushed up there? It's, it's, yeah, it's, it's eco-fiction, right? Like, yeah, it's, yeah, it's, it's, yeah, it's eco-fiction. The polar ice caps have melted and people. Like, there's no more land or it's, that's what they think.
2: Yeah, I think it definitely could go for a You guys are going to push back? Re- you're going to... no. I actually it makes me want to revisit it, right? And actually, I actually, had no idea that it had the same uh, cinematographer as Road Warrior, um, but it totally makes sense because I've always then like having D- D- watched Dean Semler's
0: his name yeah. to give him credit.
2: So having watched Waterworld first in, I remember watching it in theaters in that late that summer on the um, second run theater and and enjoying it. To be honest, I, I've watched it a handful of times over the years, maybe like three or four times, uh, but I haven't watched it in over a, well over a decade or so. For me, I, when I finally saw Mad Max, I was like, oh, so it's the water version of Mad Max
0: instead so the desert version, right? Yeah, but, and that's also which a cool, perfect encapsulation which is cool. of, like, 90s filmmaking. They're yeah. like, what if we did Mad Max reversed where, like, yeah. now it's on water? It's truly high concept, right? Yeah. Like, in that sense of what they,
2: back in the day, it was like, the idea of high concept is, like, you take some sort of, like, you know, you could describe it in a pitch like that, like Mad Max on the ocean, yeah. or, like, it's like, you know how, like, global warming, like what if the whole world floods and it's like, you know, it's the Joel Silver special. Yep. Yeah. There's a lot of memorable stuff in it though. Like there's li- yeah, it's sort of the weirdly, weirdly for place, a movie right? that's so uh, you know, kind of maligned in popular culture, I, I often um there's little scenes in that like I vividly remember, right? Like even remember like some of the scenes that were kinda of, like weird like that giant creature that like attacks everyone Yeah the like, creature like jumps off. out. It's not yeah. quite
0: a shark. I don't know what it is. Um the, the the when we meet Costner's Mariner at the beginning right he like he's peeing into that machine and then he, yep. you see him like drink it and it's like really like like you know like a little bit disturbing especially when you're a kid watching it but then you' also think it's a little bit funny a little bit goofy but then it's also a good uh, like visual explanation of like what's going on in this world
2: I remember hopper is really really good in it as like and you know, it really it.
0: crazy like,
2: yeah and but there's like we've already for the third time we can say like supporting cast matters these like little characters i i always remember
1: michael jeter is like the really eccentric weird
2: guy right? like, <laughs> yeah the yeah. beard he's like ah
1: see i really i have no idea whether it's good or not because it's been too long like i haven't watched it in so long i'm extremely fond of it mostly because it spawned my own stupid musical cave world <laughs> in in that i wrote like with a friend in high school and performed music of but um So it'll always have that special, like, fond memories of how much it loomed over my imagination, but I I really can't pass judgment on it as a movie.
0: So, I don't know, maybe we'll see if that's the most uh,
1: controversial on our list, Mm -hmm. but maybe not. Maybe not, because my next one is a movie I think a lot of people think is trash. (laughs) (laughs) What is it? It's a big franchise film, of course. Um, It's Batman Forever. (laughs) <laughs> Which came out uh, June sixteenth, nineteen ninety five. Well, the least you could have done is let me in on the caper. We could have organized this, planned it, pre sold the movie rights. Your entrance was good. His was better. So. I think in the popular memory, people basically take Batman Forever and Batman Robin and smash them together into one product, and that's, I think, a really wrong approach, even though they're both Joel Schumacher films. The thing is that Batman Forever is taking the, like, cartoonishness of Burton's films, and let's be very clear, Tim Burton's movies are insanely cartoonish. This idea that they are dark, no, they're gothic, they're heightened, they are not particularly serious. Like, come on, the print scene in Batman is as stupid as they come. That's yeah, awesome. they're, they're twisted. They're not, like... Serious. Exactly. They're not serious at all. The, but the thing with Batman Forever is, that, like, it takes that cartoonishness, but then it injects the kind of goofy energy of the 1960s Adam West show back in it, but while also compounding it on top with the kind of high camp and, like, homoeroticism of German cinema, which Schumacher brings in. And so you just get this really kind of deranged pop confection, which... I don't think works in Batman and Robin, but I think works actually quite well in Batman Forever, partially due to just how much the actors are mugging it up at, like, (laughs) extremes. So you have Val Kilmer Kilmer as Batman playing it relatively straight. So, yeah, of course you have Jim Carrey as the kind of, like, absolute deranged version of the Riddler, really doing, like, the Frank Gorshin... Like old show style like amped up to 11 the, and then you have Nicole Kidman in like total sex pot mode you have Chris O'Donnell trying to be the ultimate like 90s tough guy but the weird thing with him in the movies you don't know what really what age he's supposed to be at some scenes he seems like he's 28 other times <laughs> Bruce is treating him like he's like 12 and he's like he's my guardian now and I'm like I don't understand what's really going on here but really <laughs> I think the we ultimate really know per- <laughs> the ultimate performance for insanity is Tommy Lee Jones yes, yes. as Two-Face is just out of his mind it's the only time in a movie where he's this weird. And here's the thing. I can understand if like you, the camp, the like high camp level is not appropriate. If if you don't think you'd like that for a Batman movie that's fine. But I think it's super entertaining and I actually think it's added on by the fact that it, it obscures the fact that Schumacher's quite good at constructing action scenes and pacing scenes. So the movie actually looks pretty good. It's got really good action scenes and... It plays really quickly. Like, it's there's not really ever a dull moment in it.
2: Totally. Man, okay, I have to tell so the story, 1990s story, is that I had my, so this is what, also 1995? It 95. was my, my 13th birthday party. Went to the opening night of Batman Forever with my friends. And it was a very formative movie in that point. I was big into Batman, I was big into comics. I, I would have to say that Nicole Kidman was one of those first, like, formative, like, on screen crushes for me in terms of developing my, like, taste in women and things. Like, um, like it's, a, it's weird that way, like, for me. like And it was a hyped, hyped movie. Like, all the McDonald's mm-hmm. like tie-ins and things like that.
1: It um, has the infamous drive-in
2: ad, remember? Yep. I'll get drive <laughs> yep. Um. And again, I'm going to just hammer this point again and again. Like, t- look at the supporting cast of this thing, of people who aren't, like, the top-listed people. Drew Barrymore... Renee Abreu right? right? Uh, like it's there's like so many like interesting little roles that like I think add to the flavor of the film, but also like the the production design as well. Like the city of Gotham in that is it's madness. Like it's the an giant statues. Circus.
1: Yep, <laughs> yeah, that's actually really which good reminds me of one of my
2: favorite lines. The uh, tell me, Doctor, do you like the circus? <laughs> yeah, he have got the lift. <laughs> anyway, yeah, I I this is not controversial. I think that. If we want to remember '90s, whether what you think of the film,
0: good or bad, it's uh, worth remembering. I would say that I remember watching it and finding um, even its camera work kind of like overwhelming when I saw it uh, the first time. Like the the combination of like the sort of the crazy neon, but there's a lot of like bizarre camera angles that take in this sort of this, uh, as you say, this Art Deco circus uh, at times like a madhouse. Right? Um, it's almost it's very, like early digital f- camera work. I almost, it's it very seems. it's well it, it's very like um it's just super energetic the film the film is like intense energy and like you can see it in the in, particularly in the villains but like right like tommy lee jones and jim carrey are going bananas on screen they're just like losing their minds and they're like the way they're goofing around with each other like it's it's actually unhinged right like performances <laughs> yes yeah. like so literally that's not like a hyperbole
1: It's a deranged blockbuster, which I don't think they would let you
0: do with a franchise and a property like Batman anymore. At best they'll let you do have one character like that and then he can be like the weirdo, right? But like this movie, like everyone's a little bit crazed in it. Yeah. Yeah. It's a throwback to what we talked about in our Wonder
2: Woman nineteen eighty four thing. That's a film that could have been Batman Forever, but the, the, the filmmaking of today is too constricting and the imagination doesn't allow people like you know, Pedro Pascal and Christian Wig could have Gone to that level, but they never did, right? Yeah, and the rest yeah.
0: of the movie didn't, uh, wasn't on the same frequency as them. Pedro Pascal and Kristen Wiig belong in a Schumacher movie, I exactly. Instead, right? So, Andrew, so Andrews, what's yours? <clears throat> All right, so my
2: my second pick for a '90s summer movie to remember is July seventeenth, nineteen ninety eight, The Mask of Zorro, <laughs> directed by Martin Campbell, starring Antonio Banderas, Catherine Zeta Jones, and
1: Anthony Hopkins. I don't have the time to give you the proper instruction. I have had the proper instruction since I was four.
2: I think it's just a great swashbuckling entertainment. Hits them all, you know, the, all the points that you really want in a movie. It's it's a you know a nineties reboot of a old franchise. It Has venerable stars as up-and-coming stars in terms of Catherine Zeta-Jones at the time, and Banderas was a hot property at the time. And uh, you know, Martin Campbell is one of his, you know, of his along with his Bond films, Goldeneye, and Casino Royale is I think one of his better ones there. And I think it also weirdly looks forward to and back in a weird way. It, it looks back to adventure films like Indiana Jones and Raiders of the Lost Ark. Uh, and th- things like that but also forward to things like Pirates of the Caribbean um, I think there's a little bit of that in there that kind of they're mo- a little more family friendly but still a little bit edgy I really always enjoyed the historical action stuff and it's, it has a bit of the western vibe and all that so I'm, I'm looking forward to actually revisiting Mask Zorro with my boys because I think that I've been telling them how, you know, Zoro in some ways is also kind of a, like a proto superhero character. Oh, definitely. Sort of a, he presages Batman. Sure. He's the the noble who, you know, dons a mask in order to fight injustice. And, you know, it also has that like passing of the the guard that whole, like, Hopkins to Banderas, all those training sequences and stuff like that. It's just such a memorable movie. Even the trailers actually were quite memorable before I even saw the movie. You know, like, the the, the cutting Zed into the, the screen, the the scene where he, like, cuts off Catherine Zeta-Jones' clothes a bit. I mean, maybe people might think that's a bit, you know, not cool today, but it, it was, you know titillating without being
1: like offensive well it was it was sexual energy in a blockbuster which was allowed in the 90s but it was a family movie but it's not allowed today you'd never find anything close to that sensual in a marvel film and yet
2: i would say that a lot of people today would say massacre Zoro is a relatively like family oriented and like tame movie in a lot of
1: ways yeah i think you hit on something really interesting i just want to quickly reiterate which is The movie plays like a superhero film specifically a superhero origin story and that's why i find it so enjoyable it's it's the origin of how banderas's Zoro comes to be it's the film is really fixated on training sequences and him doing small realistic acts of heroism Mm -hmm. and it's a thing that like spider-man has batman begins has but like very after kind of the dark knight they kind of just lose the entirely from the superhero movie so you have to almost go back to a film like this to get that
0: And Anthony Hopkins is also great in it. And I like the way that ties the old Zorro and the new Zorro together. It's actually a really good um, diegetic reboot. It is. In that sense of, like, being, like... Like, in in doing it in a way that doesn't seem lame or cheesy, but actually having, like, Mm -hmm. a really uh, well-thought-out connection that you can have a new character as Zorro, but... And he knows the old Zorro. I do think it also has a bit of that, like
2: something Gore Verbinski tried to do later with like pirates and even the lone ranger and stuff like that. Like it has this sort of like myth-making you know, period piece adventure. And I really appreciate this stuff, you know, like I always remember the stuff about how like the villains plan is like to, like, separate California from Mexico, mm-hmm. right? The and independent in the Republic, Republic of California. Republic of California, exactly. And also, it has a really key thing that, some, it was one of the films that helped us formulate one of our, like, 90s uh, action movie staples, which is the acrobatic villain, right? Acrobatic the, henchman. Acrobatic, acrobatic henchman. It always has to be the secondary character, remember? Like, that guy, so the guy, who like, does, all, like, the like he's got the blonde hair, he does the flip, He Has like, to be blonde. Yep. <laughs> yeah. It's kind of, like, kind of more
0: deranged than the actual villain, right? Yep, the, he has to have blonde hair, typically has blonde hair, sometimes albino, has to be acrobatic, tending almost into, like, circus-type things. Like, why does the one man like, why does he do a backflip?
2: But it's, like, so that stuff sticks out when you're, like, you know, a teenager, it's, like, kind of cool and, like, edgy. But, like, also, like, Banderas and Catherine Zeta-Jones are just so, like, attractive and cool in this movie. Like, it's, I can see why it would hit, like, it's totally that, like, four quadrant movie and the fact that you could have a grandparents who might remember zoro from back in the old yep, tv shows yep. and serials to like young kids who and teenagers who are interested in like the hot young stars to me we it's liked really... it when like like our dad liked it yeah because he liked zoro because dad dressed up as zoro for halloween in 1962 right like
0: can i just say building on your idea comparison to pirates 2 um i just want to use the word romp like, it's mm-hmm. a good romp, and there, it, yeah. what I mean by that is that, like, there's a lot of energy to the, the sword play, and the action's often propulsive, and it seems it's moving through space, like, a lot. Like, Zoro's always, like, running and leaping, and, like, the pirate movies uh, do a good job mm-hmm. of uh, doing that. And the reason I mentioned back, having rewatched watched Raiders Lost Ark this last weekend,
2: uh, like, the the kind of chase scenes and, like, the horsemanship and stuff like that, like... Thinking about that, the the indie chase scene, Mm, there's a lot in Zorro where like Zorro has to like leap onto horses in desert, you know, climates and like chase people and and things
0: like that. So the quality stunt work, right? Yeah, there's real stunt work in the movie, which is a core 90s action movie feature. Yeah, that in some ways is diminished in most of our blockbusters today. Yeah, if it doesn't star Tom Cruise, okay. My second, uh. Last night, I rewatched the X Files movie. So it's 19th of June, 1998. Cherish the past. Enjoy the present. Because the truth is coming. I remember I saw it when it came out. Um, I liked it. I'd never really watched The X-Files a ton, so I was kind of confused by it. Watching it now, I'm like, oh man, this movie's sweet. It's it's really good. I like the fact that as a summer, you know, big blockbuster, uh, one of these big like movie tie-ins, right, to a TV show, but it does a great job of the tie-in because I actually think the movie works as its own individual movie. It explains the characters enough that if you're unfamiliar, you can understand them. But it's also quite firmly, you know, from reading, I know like it's quite firmly embedded within the storylines between, I think, season five and six. And it's really the culmination of love the earlier, the extraterrestrial mythos that was being built up. It's also a big budget movie. That's all not about action. It's not about fighting. It's not about attacking things or blowing things up. It's like a thriller. It's mostly about sort of detective and investigation. And the pleasure of the movie is seeing people stand in darkened alleyways and have hushed conversations about how FEMA is a government within the government. And actually today, it's conspiracy theory type stuff is, you know, whether whether you're more into conspiracy theories these days or more alarmed by them, this movie plays for our time in a way that I think the 90s were like a precursor. And what with UFOs being in the news, like, this is the movie you need to rewatch this summer, The X-Files. It's even about a plague, an extraterrestrial virus. Fantastic. I, uh, I actually have a DVD of
2: it. I should rewatch it. I remember seeing it in theater. Again, like you, i only seen, like, a handful of episodes of X-Files. But it played really, really well for me back in 1988. I think I maybe watched it once since I'd be open to, to watching it again. Um, I will just note that director Rob Bowman, his follow-up film was a film that doesn't make the cut because it's not a 90s film, but one that I re-watched last summer, which is uh, Rain of Fire, which is a uh, very enjoyable movie of its own.
1: You know where Rob Bowman cut his teeth, right? Directing episodes of Star Trek The Next Generation. So he has very that sturdy TV uh, sci-fi. I've never watched uh, The X-Files. I've never seen
0: the TV show, so I'm completely ignorant of it. As a summer movie, and I'm thinking of Spielberg and the kind of setups he has in a movie like Jurassic Park, uh, this movie, Bowman actually has a great uh, first few scenes that set Um, set the audience on edge. We get really interested in what's going on and it it has that sort of like moving from place to place and you're building a sense of like, okay, like what's going on here? How do things connect? It starts in 35,000 BC with cavemen running and falling into a cave in North Texas. Then a great like uh, jump cut to like a boy falling down into the same cave and then we jump to um, a federal building in Dallas uh, that's like has a bomb threat and so it's even... It's drawing on Ruby Ridge and uh, the way, uh Oklahoma City, the Oklahoma City bombing, and yep. so it it was a movie that was actually quite embedded in some of the political discussions of like the nineties. But then it has this added relevance today, um, I think.
2: I think it helps that uh, DiCaprio and Anderson have like are such like for T V people who are best known as tel- television actors. They have like good like presence and charisma. But yeah. I really enjoy also like Martin Lando. In it. yeah
0: yeah he's great he's a he, yeah he's a great like the character who's sort of uh you know letting you into all some of the secrets yeah. um, he's he's kind of like the the deep throat the watergate like well another version because I think the first the first season has is, his own deep throat last thing I'll say is that I think uh Ducophony and Anderson are like a great duo together and they're actually one they're actually one of the great like sort of de- detective pairs the way that they're having this sort of Philosophical dialogue of you know like the the rationalist versus the versus you know in the in the skeptic versus the one who's like really into this stuff like even though it plays people think it's a little bit like um, rigid in the show but the movie does a good job of even extending that dynamic and um, and having its own smoldering sort of um, right there's the smoldering sort of er- erotic tension between them that like they don't even kiss in the movie but they're clearly like right they're clearly drawn to each other. And I, and I do think it, that the first
2: X-Files film, because there was a second X-Files film many years later. Have yeah, 2008, a yeah. decade
0: later. I actually haven't seen that one. I,
2: I've seen it. It's, it. That one felt to me less compelling as a movie on its own right and felt less like a summer like, event movie, whereas the 1998 X-Files movie was an event that even someone, so someone like me who was only passing familiarity with the television show, had watched a few episodes with friends and things, um, it was a must-see movie. Mm -hmm. In 2008 it didn't
0: yeah and it's an example also of like that early before geek culture took over mainstream and became just how our summer movies all are it was sort of this geek culture event of like oh the x-files was gonna get its movie but then it, it does actually work for a general audience and you're right the scale of it it doesn't play out like a long tv episode it actually plays out like there's like a major things at stake and i was pleasantly surprised that it was it held up so well all right, Aaron, back to your, your third film. Final pick. All right. Are you? Are you? Do you have a list you're trying are to? Cha- know are you changing it or? I know.
1: had a change because Andrew Zhu had a couple of my backups. Masked was on your list. Yeah, Masked was on mine. So I'm oh, gonna man. switch over to a different tactic here, and I'm gonna pick the movie that our dad calls the most entertaining movie of all time: The Fifth Element, from <laughs> <laughs> May 9th, 1997. It opened at Cannes so in good. France a few days earlier, and then in North America that weekend.
0: this boy is fueled like fire so start melting ladies because the boy is hotter than hot he's hot hot, hot.
1: <laughs> it's a film with an extreme oddball energy um again a really good cast headlined by bruce willis in full action hero mode gary oldman as the deranged villain ian holm as the really wise mentor character and mila jovovich as the uh, like kind of proto-action heroine um wild card you know kind of setting up what she is in the resident evil movies later but extreme um Mm -hmm. like you know it's supposed to be the perfect human being right so like beautiful and strong and learn smart um the thing that i'm really drawn to i think most with this film is how it it blends comic energy into the storytelling itself without being a comedy because chris Tucker's absolutely irritating annoying awesome (laughs) ruby rod is like you want to throttle them, and the it, way that Bruce Willis is just hates him <laughs> so in much end. in the film is so, <laughs> so funny. So good. Like, every time we watch it with Dad, he's just, like, dying with Chris Tucker. Like, And you can tell he's so annoyed, but he's laughing so hard. The other thing about the movie is that it kind of sets up this template for um, colorful, outlandish, very imaginative future that's not a clear-cut utopia or dystopia, which you get... And it's, it kind of mm. sets that template for movies like Guardians of the Galaxy that really try and riff on it, where, you know, it's not a feature where everything sucks or everything's awesome. It's just a really interesting, bright, alien-ish future. <laughs> and also huge props for casting Tiny Lister as the president of Earth, which R.I.P. <laughs> he brings such a strange, actually, <laughs> physical <laughs> dignity to that role, and it's just... Again, you would have you need the French madman to inject a kind of oddball energy into the Hollywood sci-fi picture.
2: You might even go so far to say that like, the French directors understand like American culture, like having Tiny Lister as the president, you know, and stuff like that. Like, yeah, I, I love The Fifth Element. It's like, I-, I it's what film I regularly watch. Um, I you know, and I've gone on to enjoy even like the later films like uh, you know, Polarion, The City of a you know, Thousand worlds or whatever and the fifth element i just i actually couldn't imagine that film being made today it is also a good example of like mix of practical effects and early digital effects there's like some of the shape-shifting uh, stuff with like the aliens faces and stuff like that but you also have like yep. that city the city of like the future is it's like new york city like it's amazing like yep. it looks so good like when i whenever i uh, like back my car into my garage and I like get ready to like go out. I actually honestly always think about like Corbin Dallas, like getting in his taxi and like the coming out and like busting out, it, you know, into like space. Cause it's actually a very visceral and like uh, satisfying idea.
0: I'd say that you, Aaron, you point out something interesting that actually sets this apart from a lot of these other 90s blockbusters is um, I think it's the European sensibility of Besson, but um, the interplay of comedy. And action is distinct from a lot of these other uh, American blockbusters and action films, which, you know, will have lots of quips or lots of comedy, but it doesn't have the same um, sort of like just comic infusion that pervades the whole thing without being like a mockery.
1: Yeah, it's not a satire or anything. But it also incorporates what the French love is, like, slapstick and stuff. So -hmm. you have that great scene where there's the supermodel character, remember? And he's like, throw me the weapon, throw me the weapon. And he throws him, like, the completely useless thing and, like, smiles at him. And Bruce Willis is just like, oh, my goodness. (laughs) I do also enjoy
2: the, like, tiny role by, like, French director and actor Matthew Kasovitz as the mugger who's wearing the... (laughs) The reflection hat that it's like supposed to be the hallway? Yeah. The reflection of the hallway. <laughs> he's like, he's like, like I'll, I'll And he's like, I'll just take that. Is it the gimme yeah. is he the yeah. gimme? Give me the cash, cash give me the cash. <laughs> like yeah, he's yeah, like Oh, yeah. you gotta hit
1: that Guy, button right
0: there. <laughs> you know, like it's just funny to put someone who like directed such an acclaimed film like The into like that role. And that's Bruce Willis when he's still riding high off his badassness of die, yep. hard, right? Like But it's also immediately after his sort of revival
2: from uh Pulp Fiction a few two or three years later earlier right
1: yeah it's after Hudson Hawk and the and the his kind of low point and then Die Hard with a Vengeance kind of brought him back into the yeah. action fold
2: he had to make movies with Samuel L. Jackson to <laughs>
1: that's
0: true well Anders all
2: right trying to just I think I think the film I'm going to highlight again I'm going to switch things again away from action and away from science fiction and away from well it's total science fiction absolute 100 percent science fiction <laughs> but not an action movie and uh, it was actually a big hit, which is July 11th, 1997, Robert Zemeckis' Contact. Talk to me, guys. Partially polarized set of moving pulses, amplitude modulated. We're locked, systems check out, signal across the board. What's the frequency? 4.4623 gigahertz. Hydrogen times pi. Told you.
0: Strong sucker too.
2: I got it, I got it, I got it, I'm patched in. All right, let me hear it. Let's do that. it was a you know huge summer movie in, in many ways. Um, and it was his follow-up to Forrest Gump starring uh, Jodie Foster, and an adaptation of Carl Sagan, also Matthew McConaughey. Um, Contact is one of those films that like, I also feel has that like it's like a key 90 s like blockbuster film that's not like explicitly an action or comedy film. It's actually somewhat dramatic, but it played as like kind of a summer, uh, like tentpole film weirdly because, mm-hmm. because of where Zemeckis was in his career at that point and the status of foster and people. But it's also such an actually enjoyable film when you watch it. It's like, it has all these like interesting characters and it spins this mystery of this like broadcast from space it, play, it, it plays, you know, very much uh, Zemeckis uh, in Spielberg mode a little bit, right? Yep. But it's also very clearly uh, philosophically indebted to Carl Sagan and stuff like that. And there's a lot of, like, supporting actors and characters and things in it that feel very 90s. I mean, it goes so far as to actually use footage of Bill Clinton. Responding to, I believe it was the Oklahoma City bombing and other thing, or a major event, to have him respond to the idea that aliens are real, mm. and so it was. It was kind of playing off what Smekes had done with Forrest Gump in that sense, right? Like the incorporation of real footage, and then you have like you know John Hurt as the sort of uh, you know Al- Arthur C. Clarkish, uh, but also like billionaire character. You like. It's so interesting in that way. You have um, Busey Jr. as the uh, sort of psychopathic uh, terrorist. Um, it's a really interesting film in both as like an encapsulation of like '90s culture of the idea that you would actually pitch this as like a big summer July like movie as the follow-up to an Oscar-winning, like uh, crowd-pleasing. You know high scores in one of the high scores movies, mm-hmm. and but adaptation of a uh, fairly like well received science fiction novel. Yeah, I, I think Contact Attack's a great
1: film. I think Contact also embodies that end of history mode of like bridging the divides because it has the Kant Con- and McConaughey character as the, the man of faith, has Jodie Foster as the you know, woman of science, and they're kind of union together in this understanding that of aliens that also incorporate kind of a spiritual dimension. Yes, it's.
2: It totally fits into that. Um, I think I always find it funny, like McConaughey's character. He's like this, you know, Christian person, but it also like it also has this very like sort of like '90s laid back progressive yeah. role for him, which kind of fits McConaughey. Well, the anyway. thing that always
1: made me laugh in the movie is that he like hooks up with Jodie Foster, yeah. and then later he's like lecturing her on like not being serious enough about. The church religion. and religion, yeah, exactly. and it's like, what you're like the spiritual guru to Bill Clinton in this film. Actually, no, that kind of fits. That you're
0: some, like, <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Can I? I'll say that like I think the movie is a great example of spectacle detached from destruction, mm-hmm. and that's not something the '90s are known for. I mean, this is the this is the height of the. I'm gonna. The disaster I'll challenge movie. that
1: though a bit. You I think the explode. '90s no. the '90s has extreme optimism though like what is the everybody remembers yes Titanic for sinking Jurassic Park for the T-Rex attack but Jurassic Park also has the Brachiosaurus scene where they literally stand in awe Tyrant Titanic has the opening scene when you first see the ship come alive from the pan across the historical image into the recreation that's digital and it's supposed to be like this is what we can do with movies this is what we can do with humanity and we're like it's this march of progress that you have um, made possible by the tools of filmmaking, and I think
2: contact fits into that. Like Zemeckis is totally buying into that Cameron Spielberg kind of like optimism and like hope in a lot of ways, right? Like, I agree also, that
1: the dominant mode no, is the disaster movie in yeah. that in the time period when Contact came out. But it's
0: not also not an action no. movie, right? Like it's not an action movie. It doesn't have any fighting. No, but there's one. And then the contact with the aliens is, does not involve no. any sort of action or fight.
2: There's, there's only one scene that could be conceived of like sort of desa- It's like when the terrorist blows up the first yeah. device before yeah. Uh, yeah. you know John hurts like you know reveals the existence of the second. Yeah. Uh, one. Okay, you don't need to spoil it yeah. all. I'm assuming some some people if you haven't seen it you should check it out but also it fits into like great supporting cast Uh, you know I think David Morris who was already was in The Rock as well but Tom Skerritt from Alien is in it in a great role and also interestingly you have uh, Jenna Malone who would go on to become a bigger star plays a young Ellie in the early scenes and there's that amazing shot that Zemeckis pulls off where she's racing for the mirror if you haven't seen it you should like just like check out that shot it's a it's like special effects work that Zemeckis was really good at in the 90s that like few filmmakers today would have the patience to pull off for such like a scene that has emotional resonance within the film but isn't like a action scene and that I admire that about
0: and it's a mirror it's a mirror it's a mirror shot shot,
2: that you're like wait how did they do that and yeah uh that, to me, sums up Zemeckis at his best, even in Forrest Gump. I know it's a film that people have mixed feelings about. I have mixed feelings about it. it is, there's moments where you're like, how did they do that? But within a context that's not giant, world-spanning destruction.
0: It's interesting that the movie... Um, I understand what you guys are saying. I think you make some good points about there being um, an optimistic, sort of wondrous spectacle... In a lot of these movies, like the Brachiosaurus and Jurassic Park, before you get into the destruction. What I just find interesting about Contact is that um, it's like a big scale movie that doesn't sort of devolve into the destruction as like a justification for the scale or the budget. And in some sense, even though action, uh, Nolan, Christopher Nolan is an action filmmaker, it kind of anticipates some of the appeal of his movies for being sort of the big blocks, the big. Blockbuster head trip movie, where part of the the goal of the movie is that you're like, oh wow, and then obviously mm-hmm. the the original blockbuster head trip movie is two thousand one Space Odyssey, but you know it's one of those movies where like part of the the you know the enjoyment and the pleasure as like this big movie is being like, oh wow, like you know like at the end like when all yeah. the stuff happens.
2: So Anton, I would say you were very astute there and pointed out two really interesting connections, which is that Contact bridges two thousand one A Space Odyssey with her you know traveling through the gate. And yep. uh, and also the Arthur C. Clarke references with John Hurt, who's clearly yep. a, a Clarke stand-in, to Interstellar, which to me is the film yep. that is the most close analog and also has Matthew McConaughey.
0: And Interstellar also explains the universe by the personal yes. familial dimension, and that's something that Contact does as
2: yes. well. Yes. So to me, Contact and Interstellar are like two of those like science fiction films that are both kind of like, we might say even hard sci-fi, but yet... Uh, end up siding on the side of like humanism and like hu- like humanity
1: in a lot of ways, weirdly. Yeah. And that's all sci- hard sci fi. Asimov, Clark. Mm-hmm. They're all extreme humanists.
0: Absolutely. Well, I'm going to end things off with my last pick. A um, couple choices I'm thinking about. You know, I think I'm going to, I'm picking the movie that perhaps um, is kind of an obvious movie. Maybe some people hate it or think it's dumb. But I'm picking it not because I there's other better stuff on my list, but I'm picking it because I think it really sums up the 90s summer movie. And so I'm picking Twister, directed by Ian DeBont, uh, 8th of May, 1996. <coughs> Helen Hunt, Bill Paxton, the great Bill Paxton, uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman in supporting role, Alan Rock. What I like about this movie and the reason I'm drawn to it and I like I saw it in movie theaters, I liked it. I didn't think it was great then. I've re-watched it a few times and it grows on me each time and the reason I'm sort of picking is that I think it sums up some of the better sides of the 90s action um, blockbuster disaster movie. One, I like that it's a disaster movie, right? Uh, tornadoes, but it's on a more real-ish scale. Like you know, it's dealing with the largest kind of tornadoes that we can have, but it's not like tornadoes ravaging the whole planet. And it this so this is before the excesses of like you know what where Roland Emmerich goes with things for the disaster movie. It has a you know it has the the cast stuff we're talking about like I like the the two leads I like the supporting cast. Uh, Don't forget Carrie think, Ellis as the villain. Yeah, he, I mean he's the villain and he's a great villain. He really, you know, like he's one of that like smarmy villain guy. Um, he does he's a so great job at that. of that. Who has who has the more like you know they have the more expensive and souped up and nice uh, storm chasing equipment. So he he does a great job of playing that. Um, it has really good set pieces. It. Has a very um, conventional, but I think um, solid character arcs, um, you know, where you get the, the personal moments, but then you get some of like the big, cool, impressive destruction scenes, great special effects. And then most of all, the reason I'm picking it for a summer movie is that um, the idea of like sort of the summer storm is something very evocative for me um, when I think about the experience of summer and seeing, like, a storm come in, and this movie, I think, does a really good job of just capturing, like, um, that quality of summer, and it's the kind of movie where you're, like, like, like like a storm, you know, like, you'd watch this kind of movie, you'd be in the movie theater, it's noisy, it's getting chaotic, and then you come out of it, and it's probably still the summer, because I would be watching a matinee, and everything's sort of calm outside and sunny again, and, you know, you just the movie's kind of goofy at times, but it was a good experience, and it's the kind of thing that hits for sort of this mass large audience.
2: I think, as a Prairie kid growing up, it also has special resonance, like that tornado and like
0: you know, it's just the fear of tornadoes. Saskatchewan is like that. Like they close,
2: you know. There's tornado. Tornadoes in southern Ontario, you know, but but yeah. like Saskatchewan, it's more an active threat at times. Um, but yeah, that's that's a good point. It has that kind of. Uh, visceral impact you know you might watch the movie in the afternoon go home and then that night there might be a like welling supercell you know like come over you
1: and see i i see what you're saying anton but i i just watched this last week i never watched it as a kid because i was as you both know i was absolutely terrified of tornadoes as a child like petrified (laughs) and so i couldn't bring myself to watch it as a kid but i finally watched it front to back as opposed to just seeing clips on tv and well, I appreciate the things you're saying about it evoking a summer storm, and the way it uses its cast and the way it uh, it's you know fairly sure-handed in its direction, and it looks pretty good. The special effects aren't you know don't hold up, but they were amazing at the time, so you still give it props for the way it uses the visual effects, incorporating into like actual cars flipping and stuff. But my issue with the film is that like. of the movie is literally just Bill Paxton and Helen Hunt in the car screaming at each other, (laughs) smacking the steering wheel going, Go, go, go! And then Philip Seymour Hoffman's in, like, the other van, like, hooting and hollering. It's just, like, it's extremely repetitive. Each storm chasing Clearly you're not a
0: storm chasing Aaron. Isn't
1: that the whole pleasure? (laughs) Well, storm chasing videos, yeah, it, it really does lean into that, like, as you see on YouTube videos. But... Yeah, like hitting the horn. Oh, man, oh, man. That doesn't necessarily sustain a 100-minute movie for me. Beyond that, the movie does something which I think is so unbelievably stupid, which is that it sets up Helen Hunt's character in the opening scene, losing her father, and she's the only person to, her and her mother are the only ones to survive an F5. It's the biggest. It's the biggest. And, oh, my goodness, an F5 is forming. And the way that the emotion of the film is, hinged on her getting revenge on a bloody storm is so stupid it's like lady you are a tornado expert you are completely aware that this is not the same storm that killed your dad and beyond that it is literally a wind cell why is the entire film's emotional crux dependent
0: on her beating the storm i think i i disagree because i actually think that that sort of stuff is like Part of the skill in sort of character development because otherwise, how do you make it's perfunctory though? How do you no, but how do you make us care? We don't care, that's the point. No, but I think I think like care when it hits her mom's house. We don't
1: care about the idea that her getting the weird sensors up into the storm is somehow paying off some childhood loss. As if like this is the bear I just have to hunt. Hollywood has this thing whenever it's a disaster movie or it's an animal movie or survival film that like it's it's the Jaws thing. You have to personalize the animal. It's It's an enemy. But again, this isn't an animal. It's not a person. It's a storm. It's literally a storm. It's wind. It's a one-time event. And you can't hold a grudge against other storms. But every man versus nature story does this. No. Specifically, usually animal movies. But this film applies it across to a a weather event. Like, an earthquake in deep impact. You don't get angry at the asteroid, but it's an inevitability of destruction. It's not like, this asteroid took my dad from me and I'm going to get it back. Armageddon has a bit of that, like, we're going to blow this to hell.
0: Yeah. Well, yeah, I think Armageddon is the more embodiment yeah. when they're literally shooting machine yeah, guns. Yeah, but the, that's hilarious. It at, crosses at over the into the
1: absurd. Yeah, this movie actually wants to get a little bit of a,
0: a tear out of you. I, but again, like I'm not saying this is like a I'm not saying this is like a top shelf, right? Like this isn't a, this isn't a top shelf blockbuster. But for me, like that arc that you're talking about in her character is 90s film. Yeah,
1: I'm just saying that it's dumb.
2: I guess I would just say also the other thing I would want to be. It's interesting is. Um, an example of, along with, you know, Jan de Bont directing, like, Speed prior to this. And, you know, he was mostly known as a cinematographer, right? Mm-hmm. Like, he's he did uh, Die Hard. He did uh, a lot of Paul Verhoeven's films, things like that. Like, it's kind of well, an interesting thing where cinematographers could cross over into becoming sort of mainstream directors. And I, find, I always find that interesting. But it also shows, like the role that a screenplay also has to, has to mm-hmm. play in the movie as well. Like I, I, I haven't watched Twister in probably 20 years, so I don't really have an opinion on it in this case. Hasta la
0: vista, baby. At the end, we usually open up the discussion to broader topics in the film culture, but since we run on quite a long time on each of these, uh, I'm going to wrap things up here last month we discussed our hopes for and mostly frustrations with the current summer prospects and that's partly what sparked our desire to put out this list so i'm hoping that you know this provides you with some good movie watching some things to return to maybe to see for the first time if you miss them if you have pushback against us and think some of our picks are just awful please let us know and uh hope you enjoy see you next time goodbye mr i
2: bid you farewell